From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Obesity in the United States is way more complicated than people's choices about food and exercise. New research from CU Boulder scientists found that prenatal exposure to air pollution is part of the puzzle. How are poor air quality, racial inequality, and health problems like obesity tied together? Then Kara Winger joins us from Colorado Springs as she gets ready for her fourth Olympic Games. Plus, a display at Denver's Museum of Contemporary Art that involves moving entire walls cross-country. Some are about 1,600 pounds, and we had to develop our own pulley system, if you will, for extracting them from the crates. Then we'll go inside the late artist Keith Haring's first solo show in Colorado, and a Denver muralist who found artistic inspiration in alleyways. June 30th was the end of Colorado Public Radio's fiscal year. Thank you to every listener who made a donation in the last 12 months to keep us financially sound and to those who make ongoing gifts as Evergreen members. As CPR starts a new budget year, our goal is to continue to provide the information, the exploration, and the discovery that makes listening an important part of your day. We are grateful for your support that makes meaningful and thoughtful programming available across Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Polluted air is unhealthy. We know that. But University of Colorado Boulder scientists found that health problems may begin even before we're born. The new study examined 123 Hispanic mothers in California during and after their pregnancies. It looked at the effects of air pollution on the mothers and their children. Here to talk about the results are the researchers Tanya Alderetti and Will Patterson. Welcome to you both. Hi, thanks for having us. The study followed mother-infant pairs up to six months after birth. What were the most important results? Tanya, why don't you go first? Sure. As you mentioned, we examined exposure to air pollution during pregnancy. And what we found is that those exposed to higher levels of air pollution, their infants had greater increases in their weight, as well as adiposity or body fat in the first six months of life. Now, this is important since we know that rapid growth can actually increase the risk for childhood obesity. And Will, is there anything you'd like to add there? Yeah, and I'd say in addition to just looking at growth or body fatness at one point in time, we actually looked at how these measures changed over time, which is important to draw more strong conclusions. So using some science words here, we're talking about adiposity. So that's the the fat that you're gaining. And that's normal for kids. But it sounds like these babies are growing faster than normal. Absolutely. You're right. We expect infants in early life to grow, and that's a normal and healthy process. But what we found is that altered rates of growth beyond what's typically observed can set children up for a greater risk for obesity later in life. So we'll talk a little bit more about the mechanisms there and why air pollution might be part of that cause in just a moment. But first, I want to know, why did you want to study Hispanic mothers in particular? Well, this population in general is understudied in biomedical research. Um, And we also know that Among Hispanic children and youth, uh, they have nearly twice the rates of overweight and obesity compared to non-Hispanic whites and Asians, Um, and they also tend to be exposed to higher levels of air pollutants. And you're based here in Colorado. Why did you study mothers in California? 
Yeah, so most of my research has actually taken place in Southern California, since this is where most of my career is there. And I've been continuing to collaborate with researchers. There's great cohorts that are being led there by Dr. Michael Gorn at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, looking at early life dietary factors and infant growth. And because I have a particular interest on the environmental exposures and air pollution being one of them, this was a opportune uh, cohort to examine these factors. So it sounds like you're not only trying to unspool some of the complications of why people might gain gain weight early in life or later in life, but also some of the racial inequities that play into that. Absolutely. Obviously, health is complicated. People have different access to nutritious food, different work and home conditions, you name it. How did you draw specific conclusions about air pollution? Yeah, so this was a prospective cohort study. So we were able to follow infants over time, like I mentioned. And we were also able to take into account other factors that we know influence growth, like uh, maternal BMI, socioeconomic status, maternal age. And taking all those factors into account, we looked at, okay, what are the independent effects of air pollution on these growth parameters? So you studied uh, prenatal exposure to air pollution, but you've also been studying exposure after birth. Help me understand the difference and the different effects that these can have on people. Yeah, so in this particular study so far, what we've examined, as you mentioned, are the prenatal exposures. And we know that exposure to air pollution can increase systemic levels of inflammation, but it's also thought that these exposures during critical periods can alter gene expression in infants, increasing their risk for rapid growth in early life. Beyond that, we're also looking at early childhood, which is also a critical window of exposure where environmental toxins can have long-lasting impacts. This work is constantly ongoing. So in this particular cohort, we're looking to follow these infants up to two years of age and look at both the prenatal and the childhood exposures and how that increases obesity risk. And what are y'all expecting to find? Well, uh, based on this study, we've so far seen, at least in the first six months of life, we've seen higher growth as far as weight and body composition, things like umbilical circumference and total body fatness. So whether these effects will persist into early childhood and adolescence, we can't say that for sure, but we definitely want to follow that and uh, not necessarily uh, have any too, too strong predictions, but we're just going to follow where the data lead. That sounds, that, that sounds right. Um, and we're talking about air pollution generally. I'm curious if you broke down different types of air pollutions, like ozone, vehicle emissions, and those sorts of things. Yeah. Well, I just want to add to the previous question. Based on previous studies we've seen in Southern California, but also across the country and in other countries as well, we do. I would expect that the childhood exposures would continue to have an impact, whether that's additive or, or independent of those prenatal exposures. I think that'll be really important to try to tease apart whether the prenatal or the early childhood is more important. And to answer the other question, we looked at particulate matter, nitrogen dioxide, as well as ozone. And we also looked at ozone and NO2 together as far as their potential for inducing oxidative stress. And so there's, those are all sorts of things that you might find in a big city or if somebody's living near, say, a highway or those sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. So amb these are ambient air pollutants, and you will find them everywhere across the country, not just in big, busy, polluted cities like Los Angeles, but we have them here in Colorado as well. And even at low levels of exposure, we're seeing adverse health impacts on these pollutants. And sources are traffic, um, fuel combustion, factories, even indoor sources like cooking can increase your exposure to particulate matter. Did you find a difference in the effects of air pollution on boys versus girls? Yeah, so Tanya mentioned that composite uh, exposure of NO2 and ozone. 
and we found some sex differences. So uh, among males, higher levels of exposure to these pollutants um, was associated with less growth in length. And that was consistent with some previous studies that have looked at the effects of maternal smoking during pregnancy. So that was interesting. And we also found that among females uh, born to mothers with higher levels of these exposures, they had more fat accumulated in the, in the midsection area. So this suggests that perhaps there's differences in how we respond to stresses in the womb. And when it comes to health, where fat is accumulated matters, right? Absolutely, yes. There's many, many studies showing that central adiposity is more harmful when you're thinking about cardiometabolic health. And what I hear you saying a lot is that these are exposures, obviously, kids can't control where they're born or where they're growing up in most cases. So I hear a lot of sort of needing to understand that these sorts of this adiposity or obesity, it's so frequently not related to choices. These are things that can be environmental factors, right? Yeah, I think that would be something that I would like to highlight that, of course, we know many factors contribute to obesity. And there are things like individual choices, diet and exercise. But there are things that we have less control over. We can mitigate our exposures. But research like this is showing that perhaps we should be thinking larger than just the individual factors and more about the environment in which we live. If you're pregnant or a parent hearing about this study, what can you do with these results? Yeah, this, so there's there's things you can do on an individual level that can help, um, especially if you're out for a walk or exercising, especially during peak traffic times. Um, even just picking a different route, going a few different blocks in a different direction can make a difference in the levels of pollutants you're exposed to. Um, and then beyond reducing your exposure levels, other healthy life, lifestyle factors like eating more fruits and vegetables. There's been studies showing that that can offset some of the impacts of harmful chemicals or air pollutants. So that's important to know that you're not, uh, it's not necessarily your destiny. There are things you can do to offset these effects. Yeah. And beyond outside, I just add that in your indoor environment, which you have a bit more control of when possible, if you're cooking, for example, indoors, open a window, try to increase ventilation. We know that smoking and secondhand smoke are also big sources of inhaled pollutants that could have harmful effects, which is a bit easier to control your personal environment. So try to stay away from secondhand smoke. So when you're talking about cooking and you're studying particulate matter, even smoke from cooking could be part of that? Yeah, we get exposed to particulate matter both indoors and outdoors. For this study, we only did look at the ambient exposures outside. We didn't do personal monitoring in the homes. But we do know that that is a large source of exposure as well. And if you live in a highly polluted area, um, you mentioned eating fruits and vegetables or exercising in different places. What else can you do to offset the harms of air pollution? I think Will mentioned that eating a healthy diet, fruits and vegetables that have antioxidant capacities can help offset some of the harmful effects that we think are occurring through increased exposure. So really, I think engaging in just really positive, healthy lifestyle habits in conjunction can help offset some of those negative impacts we see on air based on air pollution exposure. That's fascinating because I know the oxidation, that's something that air pollution can cause. And would you all break that down a little bit for me in maybe less science terms? How is it that antioxidants can help with air pollution? Yeah, so air pollution can increase levels of inflammation in the body and uh, oxidative stress, which is certain molecules that can are highly reactive in the body. And there's compounds in fruits and vegetables that can quench or stop these reactive molecules from this continuous cycle of uh, oxidative stress throughout the body. So 
That is absolutely fascinating. And when it comes to exercising in different places, I assume you're saying maybe exercise away from big roads where there might be that sort of oxidative stress from fuel in the air. Absolutely. Yeah. So when possible, if you can reroute maybe a couple blocks away from a major busy road, if you happen to live near a major busy road, that can make a difference in uh, what levels of pollutants you're exposed to, even in a few in a few block radius in one direction or the other. And like you said, you're looking at major urban areas, but can these also be concerns in rural areas as well? Yeah. So air pollution exposure is ubiquitous, especially in urban environments, as you're alluding to, but we're all exposed to particulate matter. And it comes from different sources. You can have agricultural sources, fuel combustion sources. We know that up to 40 percent of Americans live in regions or are exposed to unhealthy levels of air pollution. So this is not just a big city problem. And I just want to add one more thing that occurred to me that people can do is check the air quality before you go mm. outside. There's websites where you can check the air quality index or AQI, and that's another method you can use. I want to thank you both so much for joining me and sharing your research. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Will Patterson is a PhD student at CU Boulder, and Tanya Alderetti is an assistant professor in the Department Integrative Physiology, also at CU Boulder. Fewer kids are ending up in juvenile courts in Metro Denver since the pandemic started. But the ones who do go before a judge are charged with violent crimes like aggravated assault, robbery, and domestic violence. Rather than giving up on them, some teens are now sent to anger management classes. CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine found those programs can help first-time offenders. But experts say more attention needs to be paid to treating anger management earlier in a child's life. Let's say a kid shoplifts or punches another kid in school. Some municipal courts may send that kid to a place like NCTI Colorado. It provides four-hour classes for court-ordered youth. It could be a class on anger management or substance abuse or petty theft. NCTI Colorado's Mark Whitney says the classes focus on a couple of main things. If I punch this kid, what's going to happen? Getting them to think about the consequences of this particular action. They also have a cognitive behavioral approach, getting kids to understand their patterns of thinking and better ways of coping. What am I doing to cope with my stress? What types of activities I can do to help control my stress level, which can drive my anger. Whitney believes the classes do benefit some youth, especially first-time offenders. But he also realizes the class's limitations. We have them for four hours, and they're going to go right back into the environment that they came from, whether it's a school environment, whether it's a family environment. The Conflict Center in Denver also offers classes to court-ordered youth, but takes a slightly different approach. They break up the learning over a few weeks. Kids learn in a group, then practice what they've learned, come back, and learn some more. Parents must attend half the classes. The center's Rachel Pretentis. Just learning all of it in one day and then going out into the world, there's sort of a low likelihood that any long-term behavioral changes would take place. We really do want these skills to be practical, long-lasting. Experts agree such classes can help many first-time low-level offenders. But Dr. Jessica Hawks of CU Anschutz Medical Center says there isn't a lot of research on how effective those classes are, partly because they're not all taught the same way. The few studies there are, she says, do suggest cognitive behavioral therapy and parents modeling good behavior create the best outcomes. But the reality is, is as a society, 
we need to be doing a much better job of intervening well before kids are involved in the legal system. She says a large subset of kids with risk factors for anger and behavior issues could be identified in toddlerhood. Hawk says two or three preventive sessions could change their entire developmental trajectory and 10 to 12 sessions for school-age kids. But when we're intervening at 17, 18 years of age, they're so much more entrenched in these kinds of behavioral concerns, the anger is a much more core part of their personality. And they tend to have also gotten themselves involved with peers that might not be the best influence. Some courts are trying other things. A 2019 law required state courts to perform an assessment of each kid to determine their specific needs. Then they're channeled into programs like substance abuse and mental health treatment, job support, even trauma-focused therapy. Patrick Hedrick, director of Denver's Juvenile Services Center, says kids learn how trauma impacts their daily behavior. I can't tell you how many times over my 20-plus years I've heard people say, well, he's just an angry kid. Well, there's a reason why he's an angry kid. So can we figure out what that is and see how we can support addressing those issues? Youth are assessed with mental health or violence prevention screeners that don't require a clinician. One screener is called Vipers. The Violence Injury Protection and Risk Screen tool was developed by CU Anschutz's Dr. Eric Siegel. He says it can help prioritize what's driving the delinquent behavior. Whether it's discovering ADHD, whether it's coming across a learning disability or depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, the whole host of things. A lot of times, once you start treating those issues, things can get better. Denver's court system and even some of the district's school-based clinics use Vipers. Hedrick says schools can't do it all, and some youth aren't ready to deal with their trauma. So there's alternatives. Hedrick says for one young man, it was a mixed martial arts program, and the instructors were clinicians. It gave him an outlet to sort of get that physical frustration out as opposed to fighting in school. It also started to expose him not to therapy, says Hedrick. Just that informal kind of talking on the jujitsu mat that starts to open up like, okay, I can trust a little bit. CU Anschutz's Dr. Hawks says society must do a better job of reaching children with treatment earlier, treatment that teaches kids how to emotionally regulate, and helping parents realize that they are a critical component to their child's treatment. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. State lawmakers passed a historic number of gun bills this year, but Democrats didn't pursue their most ambitious proposals, and gun rights advocates weren't as energized in their opposition as they might have been before. CPR's Benta Berkland reports on the dynamics that shaped this year's gun policy debate. Democrats introduced their first gun bills close to the start of session. They required people to safely store guns and report a lost or stolen firearm. A third measure would better enforce an existing law that removes guns from people charged with domestic violence. But when 10 people were killed inside a Boulder King Superstore, Senate Majority Leader Steve Fenberg says there was a call to do more. After that horrible event, which was in my community, the next day we started talking about what needs to happen. It's always been about creating a framework, a series of policies that build on each other to create safer situations and safer environments, safer communities. In the aftermath, 
Colorado passed a new law to create an Office of Gun Violence Prevention. Cities will also be allowed to pass stricter gun laws than the state, and people with violent misdemeanors will be banned from buying a firearm for five years. The hearings drew lots of witnesses and long debates, but nothing like some gun bills in past years. Femberg says that's in part because these bills were mostly building on existing laws. But less explosive in the press and less partisan. And it doesn't mean they, these weren't partisan this year. They were. But they weren't fundamental and sort of game-changing offenses to Republicans and gun rights advocates. In 2013, after the Aurora Theater shooting, Democrats passed universal background checks and a high-capacity magazine ban. Cars circled the Capitol, honking, dawn till dusk. Opponents packed the inside of the Capitol, and two Democrats were even recalled from office for backing the bills. Leslie Hollywood is a gun rights organizer. She says between the pandemic and street violence downtown, there wasn't much appetite this year to have a huge rally in Denver. And she says many gun rights supporters are still focused on the fallout from last year's election. When you get into the gun rights world, you actually have a lot of people who tend to be more libertarian or even apolitical. I would say whether it's the election fraud or just the controversy of it or just mad about who won or the fact that we had you know these two candidates and they didn't like either of them. It was just a very contentious, dividing election. And I just think it's still just such a leading story. And Hollywood agrees that the policies put forward weren't as sweeping as they could have been. I do think if we had seen an assault weapons ban, it would have been national news. It would have been every gun rights group in the country would have pounced on that. Democrats were considering a statewide ban, but a bill was never introduced. Fenberg and others were concerned about the potential reaction. I was conflicted myself, right? I mean, I support an assault weapons ban. But from a statewide public policy perspective and where our state should go to save the most lives, passing something that is so inflammatory for some communities could put those other policies in jeopardy. They decided not to go for some of those things because they knew that the voters of Colorado would think that that went too far. Republican House Minority Leader Hugh McKean says Republicans made strong arguments against what they viewed as unconstitutional overreach. But he acknowledges that the opposition to this year's gun bills was not as heated as in years past. One of the things that that I would tell you from my perspective and talking to a lot of people is the exhaustion of people fighting an overreach by the Democrat legislature every single day. The two parties do hope to find some common ground on another element of gun violence, beefing up mental health services. And next year, there will likely be more gun bills. Democratic Representative Tom Sullivan is one of the legislature's strongest advocates on this issue. He hopes to expand the so-called red flag gun law and enact a waiting period for gun purchases, and maybe more. You know, maybe we might need to raise the uh, the minimum age. I mean, I think it's okay for, you know, an 18-year-old to be able to buy a hunting rifle or something. Maybe they shouldn't be allowed to buy an assault rifle. So maybe we increase that, you know, to 21. 
Sullivan's son, Alex, was killed in the Aurora Theater shooting, which inspired him to run for office. He says Democrats still have more work to do on gun policy, but that fundamentally, he's working toward a societal shift on the issue. And that takes time. I'm Benta Brooklyn, CPR News. The Summer Olympics in Tokyo are just three weeks away. Dozens of Colorado's top athletes are making their final preparations, hoping to realize their Olympic dream. Javelin thrower, Kara, javelin thrower Kara Winger qualified just last weekend for her fourth Olympics. Kara Winger joins us from Colorado Springs. Kara, welcome to Colorado Matters. Good morning, Avery. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. You are an eight-time national champion in javelin. 2019 was your best year in competition. You won a gold in the Pan American Games. You also took fifth place in the World Track and Field Championships. Of course, the pandemic put your 2020 Olympic dreams on hold. And then last August, you faced another setback. Tell me about that. I did. I, I, I've i said this week, you know, now that I've made that fourth team, that maybe my body just needed to hit the reset button one more time. Uh, in August of 2020, I tore my ACL in my left leg for a second time. So pretty catastrophic knee injury for anybody, for a javelin thrower. That is your absolute foundation in the throw. So it's a really difficult injury to come back from. And the fact that I did it once didn't necessarily mean that I believed it was going to be an easy road back to do it again. But it's been absolutely amazing. And really, the sports med staff at the Colorado Springs Olympic and Paralympic Training Center has been the biggest part of that. So I just I can't believe that we're here merely 10 and a little bit months after my second ACL surgery. So knee strength is important in javelin throwing. Well, the entire body, really. But if there's, you know, that one really important joint compromised in the last explosive motion in your throw, it can be really difficult to be confident in the throw. So um, I felt amazing at Olympic trials in Eugene, Oregon. And I with one more month of work before Tokyo, I just can't wait to see what happens. So it sounds like the repair and rehab, they're going well. Yes. And like you said, 2019 was a dream of a season. It was really fun. You know, difficult at first, but we figured it out. And Pan Am's um, another meet in Belarus, USA versus Europe. I won that one. And it was a huge competition for me, confidence wise, going into that world championships where I was only two spots off of the podium. So to have the international dreams that I've had for my very long career be compromised with this second knee injury was really scary and really just makes me super grateful to be on the runway every single time I get to be again. Um, So that means that, you know, I have maybe the best attitude I ever have uh, going into the Olympics because it was almost snatched for me and I'm just super happy to be back and competitive. Now, you're an alumni of Purdue University in Indiana, and you recently told the Indianapolis Star, quoting you here, physically, I am there and ready to have my best Olympics. Tell me a little bit more about that confidence that you have, even after such a big injury. I really think it's just experience. You know, I've been here for so many years, and it's really wild that my first Olympics was 13 years ago because of COVID. You know, like that is normal as 12, and 13 is just insane. So, um It took me way too long to learn how to be competitive on the international stage, but since 2018 uh, with kind of a new coaching situation and, you know, my really good friends leading the way as my coaches, it's been really fun to feel like I have kind of more control and the right people who know me really well to lead the way. So uh, that's why my international results have been better than they've ever been since 2018. Um, 
But yeah, my first Olympics, I was very young. My second Olympics was my first ACL injury. So I threw in London in 2012 on a torn ACL. And then my third was very close to my dreams. I I had the furthest ever 13th place throw at the Olympic Games and 12 people go to the final. So to miss the final by one spot and throw further than anyone else ever had to not make the final was absolutely terrible. (laughs) So just having all of those very mixed and difficult, but learning experiences going into this last Olympics, despite the injury, I feel really good about my chances to take advantage of the moments that pass by so quickly at an Olympic Games. And those were your previous three Olympics. You're 35 years old. This is your fourth Olympics. How hard is it to stay in shape as an elite athlete? When you have my coaches, uh, Jamie Myers writes all my programming. He is the USOPC uh, strength and conditioning coordinator in Chula Vista, California, where I first lived after that Purdue career. And then Dana Lyon, who is the throws coach at the U.S. Air Force Academy in town in Colorado Springs. Um, they just know me really well. They know how to how to get me ready for competition. And we also really prioritize my off time. It's important to rest as an older athlete. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, even though rehab is not necessarily rest, it really did truly feel like a reset this year to go through that knee rehab process again. So um, just, you know, everything in moderation. I'm not somebody that is super, super strict on my diet. I like to have fun. I have a fantastic husband, uh, Colorado Springs local, who cooks me almost every meal when he's home. So that's phenomenal. Uh, And just enjoying the process. I love to train. I love to see how good I can be. And I like to be really creative in my training. So it's never boring. And I've heard you mention a couple of times already your confidence and your attitude. This is not just physical. It's also emotional and mental, too, right? Yes. And yeah, injury is really hard. I've had way too many of them in my career, but I've also gotten really good at seeing the little victories along the way. So being able to capitalize on like, I bent my knee two more degrees today, and that's a huge win that I will take into tomorrow. So people think I'm relentlessly positive, And really what I am is able to see where I'm making progress and celebrate that. And that that is positivity, but it's also just a tenacity that lets you know you're on the right path. And over a long period of time, those daily victories like build up in a huge way to a fourth Olympic team in this case. Yeah. Well, you held the American women's record throw for 11 years, 66.67 meters. Your Olympic teammate finally just broke that. Maggie Malone threw 66.82 meters in a competition at the end of May. You were in the stands watching. What was that like? <laughs> it was exciting. Um, I It had been 11 years, right? And I said for a long time, like, it is so past time for me to set a personal record. Like, I cannot wait for that to happen. I still believe that it can. Uh, So to have someone else like at that level in the country is all I've ever wanted in the women's javelin. I I feel like I've kind of held this torch for so many years and people have kind of come and gone. And, you know, Maggie came in 2016 and then she kind of went for a few years. So to have her back and doing way better even than she did in 2016, which was phenomenal. Uh, What I said to her after trials was, let's both make the final. Like, that's what I want. And to push each other, like, within the country, but also internationally. So I, you know, the only negative thing was that I had torn my ACL again. Like, all I could think for a second, for a couple days of sadness was... Uh, what if I hadn't gotten hurt again? Like, where would I be? You know, like, 
how unfair but at the same time she's been through her stuff too like that is always the story in athletics is that everyone has their stuff and uh to see her do that and to see her consistency this year is really phenomenal so I have big hopes for both of us in Tokyo and your best throws in other competitions would have won gold medals in recent Olympics but you haven't made it to the Olympic podium yet what is it like to know that you could be just one throw away from a medal once you step on the field It's always, you know, everyone is capable of that at the Olympic Games, which is the fun part of such a high level of competition. Like anyone can win on the day. If you show up, you just have to make the final. So getting in the mix is what I've always been focused on. And the fact that uh, Doha 2019 World Championships went so well was really exciting for momentum going into Tokyo. So um Yeah, it's exciting, but it's also something that's been difficult mentally. If you think about distance, you know, you're not thinking about technique necessarily. And so to find that balance of like kind of recklessness in the javelin, you really have to just get after it and have the extreme acceleration until that really solid left leg. Uh, But also finesse and technique is, is really important. So you can't just try you have to think as well just a little bit and I'm I'm getting to the point where I can do both again after injury and also when the pressure's on at international meets so it's exciting to think that it only takes one but that's always true um and you can do it anywhere if you have kind of the right mental fortitude and and people around you too You've said that you're going to retire next year after the 2022 World Athletic Championships about the 30 seconds we have left why set that definitive end date I am from Vancouver, Washington, so my husband is a Colorado native, but I'm from the Northwest, and Eugene, Oregon World Championships in 2022 will be the first time that meet has been in the United States in a very, very long time, so thinking about having my last major international competition two hours down the road from my home and the idea of everyone that's ever been in my corner for 20 years being in the stands is just the perfect way to end the story. Kara, thank you so much for speaking with us and good luck in the games. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Kara Winger is one of two women javelin throwers heading to the Tokyo Olympics with Team USA. This will be her fourth Olympic Games. She joined us from Colorado Springs, the home of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee and Olympic Paralympic Training Center. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When a third wave of COVID-19 hit Colorado in late fall, testing systems and contact tracing intended to protect the state's most vulnerable nursing home residents collapsed, and 1,000 of them died. Colorado's nursing homes became the deadliest in the nation. If you miss the CPR News series, come to CPR.org to listen to the reports, see pictures, and examine the data. How Colorado Caught COVID, the third wave, at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Artist Keith Haring made his first mark with chalk drawings of figures on the walls of New York subway stations. He moved on to large murals in his distinct pop art style. One of his works was a mural painted along the walls of a stairwell in a former youth center in New York. Denver's Museum of Contemporary Art transported the original wall panels to the museum. The museum's director, Nora Burnett Abrams, took CPR's Andrea Dukakis on a tour. We are about to walk through one of our current exhibitions, Keith Haring, Grace House Mural. And tell me a little bit about what Keith Haring is known for um, in his art. Absolutely. So Keith Haring is an artist who achieved great fame and renown while he was alive, but very tragically died 
very young in 1990 at age 31. But during the most kind of fruitful period of his life and his creative practice, he was known for large-scale murals, drawings in the subway of New York City, as well as all over the world, that featured figures who were very much in action, that were moving, that were engaging, that were dancing, that were hugging, that were doing a ton of things together, but they just made you want to dance and move and kind of be inspired by the energy radiating from his figures. He is an artist who's beloved for how accessible his work is. Pretty much anyone could probably recognize one of his drawings or paintings from a mug or a skateboard or a t-shirt or a pin because he really believed that his art should be visible and accessible and in the public realm as much as possible. He didn't want art, his art to be on a pedestal, so to speak. Now, since we're radio, and for those who don't know Keith Haring, could you try to describe what kind of technique he uses to make his characters come alive? A lot of it is in black and white. Absolutely. So he's really well known for kind of describing or defining his figures, which are very much typically very androgynous. It's not clear if they're male, female, or anywhere in between, but they have a, a human-like presence. Sometimes they're very small, but most of the time they're kind of at uh, human scale. Um, in our exhibition, they're slightly larger than life. Um, they have that kind of larger than life presence. But the way that he always began is with an outline. So typically with black paint, house paint, I mean, nothing fancy. He would kind of describe the contours of these figures, their arms, their legs, and their bodies in motion would be further articulated by lines next to those body parts that were kind of moving. It's the hands or the knees or even the head. That's what he's trying to point you to. He's trying to call out that these parts of the body are not still or static, but they're really active. Now, I may make a major faux pas here, but in some ways, his depictions remind me of a cartoon character. I think many people think of his work as fun and engaging for that very reason. Now, he was an incredibly gifted artist, and he did a lot of drawing even as a young child. He drew often with his father, in fact, very much inspired by comic books and comic book characters. So you're absolutely right to catch that influence. I think the sophistication of his work as he matured reflects the, the kind of density of images that he would combine together, as well as his his ability to kind of execute a painting without a sketch or a drawing in advance. He kind of had an idea in his head and he very quickly realized it on canvas or on a wall or on some public surface. Now, what's interesting is he originally used to sneak into subway areas and other places to paint and that was before he became well known, right? Yes, so we have some photographs in the exhibition that document his early subway drawings, which were essentially graffiti that he executed in subway stations, beginning in New York, though certainly later on in many other uh, metro stations around the world. We have some photographs from when he was in Paris, for example. And the kind of origin story for that, if you will, is that in 1981, he was on a subway. I think he was headed to, you know, one stop, but got off at an earlier stop because he saw this blank black wall, um, or surface, I should say, 
in between different advertisements. And he was so curious about it that he got off the subway early, went up to essentially like a newsstand, bought some chalk, white chalk, came back down to that um, subway station and started drawing on that black piece of paper. Now at the time in New York City, New York was extremely broke, if you will, and they didn't let advertisements stay up longer than what the advertiser had paid for. So they were constantly taking down these advertisements and leaving these blank spaces. And so it just launched him into this whole area of his drawing practice. He got arrested dozens of times for what was thought to be graffiti, but many of his works stayed up for a long time or were taken down by you know, fans and admirers of his work to keep forever. And that so speaks to his idea of making his work accessible, right? To draw in the most public of spaces, surrounded by hundreds of thousands of viewers, that to him was a, a great fulfillment of his idea of what it meant to be an artist and what it meant to be a successful artist, I think which brings us to where we are. You actually moved mailboxes and doors from a building where he painted a mural. So tell us about that. Yeah, so the story behind this is really special. There was a Catholic youth center called Grace House that was owned and operated by the Ascension Church in Manhattan. And a number of the kids who spent time at Grace House also were frequenting some of the clubs in downtown New York that was kind of this epicenter of creative activity and innovation and ideas. And that's where Herring spent a lot of his time this is, you know, Madonna's early days. It's Jean-Michel Basquiat. It's Andy Warhol. And so Herring was a part of this extremely vibrant milieu. And some of the kids knew him from, like, Mud Club and Club 57, et cetera. And so they invited him to paint a mural in Grace House, where they spent a lot of their time, and which was painted this very kind of dreary and drab, beige, yellowy color. Very which we can see when we're looking here, because this is the actual wall. Exactly, exactly. So one night in 1984, he came over and in less than two hours executed this mural that started at the base of the first floor um, of the stairwell, went up to the second floor landing, and then continued on to the top of the third floor landing. And that mural lived in this stairwell for decades until 2019 when the church made the decision to remove it from the stairwell and from the building. Um, at that point, Grace House was no longer operating as a youth center. It had become an SRO or single room occupancy hotel, which is what the mailbox is on the door at the entrance of the, of the exhibition allude to or attest to. So it was no longer in use and the church made the decision to remove the mural into what became 13 different panels and then sell the mural and then eventually it found its way to Denver. I can't imagine how you move a bunch of wall panels. They look very heavy. Very good observation. They are extremely heavy. They are over 1,000 pounds. Some are about 1,600 pounds, and they each arrived in their own crates, and we had to develop our own kind of pulley system, if you will, for extracting them from the crates, setting them in the place that we wanted to, and then essentially building walls around these panels so that the visitor would be able to come to the museum and experience it as close to 
a mural as possible. So the way we've installed it, it's not like the panels are hanging on a wall, like a painting hanging on a wall. Instead, the paintings are flush with the wall and the walls are painted the same color as close as we could get as the original Grace House walls were painted. Therefore, as you come in and you encounter the exhibition, it's as close to reading it like a mural as we could get. As a series of figures that are connected along a stairwell and that really articulate what it means to be on a stairwell. And um, something I've tried to point out to viewers as we've been taking people around is that all the figures that you see are in motion. They're dancing, they're climbing, they're slipping, they're about to fall, which really calls to life what it means to be on a staircase, which is you're going up, you're going down, you're getting out of someone else's way. You are never standing still. And there's so many people who have visited the exhibition thus far who stand in front of the figures that he painted and try to mimic you know, what they're doing or how they're posing or how they're moving. And it's so fun to see that kind of joyful connection with the art. Now, there's actually an image that I think he's maybe most famous for. And we're going to walk over there. Can you describe this? It's I'll tell you what I think it looks like. It's a baby. It looks like the baby's crawling, and you really feel like it's in motion. Absolutely. You nailed it. It is um, often kind of fondly referred to as the radiant baby. It's a key part of his kind of visual vocabulary, a series of symbols that he used and reused over and over throughout his practice. And it's really can be thought of as a symbol of a kind of eternal childhood, that there was something so pure and pristine and and sacred really about um, babies, children, childhood, if you will, that he's seeking to kind of reconnect to or remind us of, that this is a state of purity before, you know, as we grow up, we get all corrupted um, and screw things up, but that there was something so holy and special and reverential about the baby and the the lines that emanate from this baby that is essentially crawling, as you pointed out, speak to a sense of light bursting or energy exploding, but a kind of radiating force that the baby itself is capable of generating. And you know, just looking around at these panels, they make you want to move. They really do. It's a strange feeling to look at all of them. And is this the first time that this exhibition has been out in the public? Yes. So this is the first time that it's being shown within its kind of current state of 13 panels. So this is the first time it's presented as an exhibition. It will be traveling next year to a venue in Europe. We're very excited about that. And this is, in fact, the first time that Keith Haring is having a solo show in the state of Colorado, which also felt extremely exciting. Nora Burnett Abrams is the director of Denver's Museum of Contemporary Art. She spoke with CPR's Andrew Dukakis about the Keith Haring exhibition now on display. The exhibition runs through August 22nd. If you like Herring's work, you should also check out artist Charlo, who was born and raised in Monterey, Mexico, and now lives in Denver. You don't have to walk into a gallery to see his stuff. Ryan Warner has the story. During lockdown, Charlo was looking for a way to make art and share it without having to be in close quarters. I have always wanted to do a mural. So I made a post on Nextdoor, and I was literally asking for a neighbor who was willing to donate a wall. 
uh, one person came to the front and was like, hey, I have a garage store. Like, he's black. Do you want to just do that? I was like, absolutely. So Charlo painted one garage door and word spread. So he did another and another, more than 20 so far. And you call this Make Alleyways Great Again, right? Yeah, Make Alleys Great Again is the same, but I, I, I like the sound of the shorter way of saying Alleys. Alleys. Uh, but yeah, so it's like a MA MAGA kind of trying to take a little bit of that uh, meaning away from it and give it a new one. His pieces resemble the works of Keith Haring with bold black and white pop art lines, a canvas jam-packed with shapes and optimistic-looking figures. Charlo tells me he admires Herring and appreciates the comparison. He says, like Herring, he's an openly gay man. But Charlo's also his own man. So I asked how he'd describe his own work. My work, I would describe it as joyful, full of surprises, very linear, and abundant, I guess. You'll also find words sprinkled into his murals. There's a puzzle quality to them. They might be words that mean something to the owner of the garage door, or words that mean a lot to Charlo himself, and they might be in English or Spanish. One that comes to mind that I I used recently was alegría. It sounds a lot like allergy. I know, like some people confuse that in in English. Uh, But alegría in Spanish means experiencing joy. And this word I use as the main theme on one of the garage doors I did, I think it was number 21. The family had two kids and were really excited about me being there, creating art, and they were going to be there. So I didn't know the theme of that garage door was going to be Alegria. And I found out as soon as I got there, because the kids came out, they were really happy and they were like saying hi, they were really engaged. And that's when the moment appeared to me like, this should be about the alegría of this moment. Some other words that I've used before is gracias, which is another word in Spanish. I include gracias or anything related to gratitude, which is something I relate to my mom as well a lot because she taught me to always be grateful and that that was going to be a way to get far in life. Denver artist Charlo, whose murals adorn garage doors all over the city, and one of them is hanging above a barber shop now, too. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News. Thank you for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill with special thanks to Dan Boyce. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.